Hi everyone, this is Caleb and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. I'm so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today I'm honored to be joined by Jack Carson to talk with him about his brand new book, which he co-authored with Joshua uh, Chatraw called Surprised by Doubt, How Disillusionment Can Invite Us Into a Deeper Faith. And, you know, really what we want to do here on the podcast is create a safe place to have difficult conversations, to have, to explore ideas, to explore topics, and to learn about things in in very much a judgment-free zone. And what we're going to talk about today has a lot to do with that, of particularly with faith, of learning to explore, learning to ask questions, learning to to face some of the the darker or the deeper reality, or I don't know about deeper, but some of the darker realities that just come with life and pain and evil and and suffering and some of the hard questions with that that um could sometimes be very difficult to explore in faith spaces. But here on the Learner's Corner, we wanna we just wanna dive into those questions and create a safe place to where we can engage in every type of question and we can continue to learn. In, in a place that encourages that as well. Now, if you do find yourself on that lifelong uh, journey, I would recommend that you go ahead and subscribe to my Substack, to where I just give uh, three recommendations each week of some of the things that are currently engaging my attention, some of the things that I'm I'm really thinking about right now, and some of the places that I go to to learn from and. Uh, it could be anything from a podcast to a specific episode or a movie or music or um, just a, a story. It could be fiction. It could be nonfiction. There, there really is no limit to what it could potentially be. All it has to do is engage my curiosity, engage me, make me think. Maybe in a little bit uh, a different way or maybe it's a unique angle of something that I have been thinking about. But either way, you could just go to the show notes and subscribe to the Substack right there which is uh you know essentially you know just signing up for an email newsletter and everything so as i mentioned you know today i'm in uh today i'm talking with jack carson about this idea of deconstruction of reconstructing our faith of diving into uh questions and we've we've had several conversations like this on the podcast and i'll link to some of those as well but this is this is just an idea. This is just a topic that I just don't think that we could talk about enough because because of the danger that comes if we don't engage in some of these questions and some of the the lone I mean we're going to talk Jack and I are going to talk about this but the loneliness that comes from that and what that can often what that can often lead to and so let me tell you a little bit about Jack, and then we could dive right into the conversation. So Jack Carson serves as the executive director of the Center for Apologetics and Culture Engagement and as an instructor at Liberty University. And he lives with his wife and son in Lynchburg, Virginia, and as I mentioned, is the author of the book, Surprised by Doubt. And without any further wait, here is our conversation.
Well, Jack, it is good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thanks for having me on, Caleb. Yeah, and you know, just as we're getting started, I know, I, I want to read a statement. I know that this is something that uh, your co-author, Josh, mm-hmm. said, um, and he said, you know, part of my job is yeah. to think about hard questions. And so I know that, you know, he wrote this, but I know that you got to have your own hard questions as well. And I thought that might be a fun place to begin our conversation Yeah. About doubt and faith and deconstruction and reconstruction and all of that and so i would just love to hear about a recent hard question that you've wrestled with yeah well he thinks about the hard questions so i don't have to that's the whole goal right (laughs) no i um i think what he was getting at there when it comes to thinking about hard questions is that both of us have chosen vocational contexts where we really day in and day out, try to think about the doubts people have about their faith, either um, evangelistically the, the and doubts that are encountered as we share the gospel or discipleship doubts within the church. And so for me, the hard questions that I personally experience have to do with the experiential problem of evil. I have had family members uh, go through really difficult bouts with cancer. And I've watched it cause seeming hopelessness and sort of a a pain that I can't make sense of. And that's hard. And that, I mean, on on a very human level is difficult. And then uh, on a sort of intellectual level, I think questions about self-duping or wish fulfillment because I experience these hard things. And I think Christianity gives a really good way to make sense of this hard world and to give hope. I, I, I often feel the pressure of thinking through, am I duping myself? Am I just giving myself something as a wish fulfillment? And so those would be some of the, for me personally, hard areas I walk through. Hmm. You mean like for talk, talk or elaborate a little bit more yeah. on the wish fulfillment? piece that you so, were mentioning. Yeah. So with wish fulfillment, I think Christianity as a system, and we'll probably get to this later with some of the content, but it, it really, really works well, right? Mm-hmm. It, it gives, and there's, there's study after study that shows that it leads to a good life. It, it, it produces flourishing. It gives us a way to understand the world around us. And it gives us hope in all of that. We see the pain and suffering of our family member experiencing cancer. We think about our own mortality and in all of these things, we could be drawn into a sort of nihilism very quickly. We could be thinking about how this all seems pointless and the suffering itself just seems painful. But Christianity steps in and offers us a way to hope. And so uh, part of the hard question for me, because I live in this space all the time, is uh, am, I, am I just convincing myself, right? Am I just walking myself along this path? to give myself the kind of account that makes life easier? Am I giving myself an account that just fulfills my wish for a good story that fits everything together? And that for me, because it's what I live in all the time, is probably where I encounter more hard questions. I think Alistair McGrath says that's like for him, the the, serious question that he has to contend with, because Christianity has a lot of answers, but almost but, it, but it's so good, right? It's mm-hmm. so good. Does it, yeah. does it seem to be sometimes too good? And yeah. that's, the, that's the space I would find to actually be intellectually quite difficult. Mm-hmm. What helps you like 
believe or trust that it isn't too good. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it is too good. That's part of the thing. It is by its very nature. It, it is sort of unbelievably good that the God of the universe would die for me and care and love me, but it, it, it's unashamedly too good. It, it admits mm. it. It shows it up front. And part of what we did in this project is talk a little bit about the wager. I can't get rid of the reality that Christianity is very good. And so it, it can nag at me there. But at the same time, it, it, it fits. It explains my deepest longings and, and the, the orientation of my heart. And I can absolutely create in my mind a scenario where I'm sort of giving myself hope. But at the same time, I think the push against that is that the gospel self-admits to being a story that is so good that it boggles the imagination, it boggles the mind, and it still fits with the world around yeah. us. So that would be that would be part of my thought track on there. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to go back because one of one of my favorite questions to ask. Anytime that I talk with somebody who's written a book or created a piece of art, and I very much do believe that writing a book is is created a piece of art mm-hmm. too. I love hearing the origin story yep. for it. And so I would love to hear both, um, you know, how, how did you and Josh come together and decide to write this book, Surprised by Doubt? Yeah. So I grew up in a strong Christian community. Um, my family were all strong believers and I sort of imbibed that faith from a very young age, came to a Christian university and made friends with lots of people who had similar backgrounds. My sophomore year, I met Josh. I went through seasons of doubt all throughout my undergrad where I experienced different pressure points uh, for my faith, where there was suffering and I had questions about that or there's an intellectual question comes up a lot of times this question about uh, the fittedness of Christianity with the world around us beyond just the fact that it makes uh, things seem brighter and happier. I also want it to be able to explain the the darkness and the, the sadness around us. And Josh helped me with a lot of that through my undergrad time. Hmm. After my grad program was done and a lot of my friends from this Christian university spread out all across the country, I began to have friend after friend and so many acquaintances walk away from Christianity and I'd have conversations with them. I'd want to sort of explore their thought process, why it was that they found faith convincing then and not convincing now. And I began to see a trend that many of their concerns with Christianity and their rejections of Christianity were, in my mind, secondary to the core aspects of Christianity itself. They weren't about Christian orthodoxy. They weren't even about supernatural claims. Many of the rejections had to do with um, Christian hypocrisy was a big one, the way the church has mistreated people. And talking with Josh about that, we decided it would be helpful to write a book that frames this journey where you grow up in a space with a certain kind of epistemology and a certain set of sensibilities that 
lead you to question that faith when you grow up when you encounter something that doesn't quite fit it it pushes you to sort of reject the whole house of faith and we wanted to sort of reframe that a little bit and and in the book we introduced the attic a space that was a certain kind of christianity that many of my friends grew up in and it has certain key characteristics that distinguish it from the cores of christianity and as they were rejecting their their faith, I found most of it had to do with these characteristics, not not the sort of foundational claims of Christianity itself. Mm-hmm. Do you want to expound on the house analogy that you guys yeah. use in the book? Because I think that's such a helpful illustration. So C.S. Lewis, in his uh, book, Mere Christianity, introduces the, the concept of mere Christianity as a hallway that you enter into. You come in the front door, and the hallway is built of these sort of core central Christian tenets that all Christians hold on to. It would be things that are represented in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, core Christian commitments that the different rooms of the house can all collectively agree upon. And this is what he called mere Christianity. He said you couldn't stay in mere Christianity. You had to commit to a room in the house. And it's a beautiful room. It's huge with many different spaces. And you can find yourself sort of situated in this this Presbyterian room or this Methodist room over here, this Orthodox room over here. But to invite people into the house, his main concern were these mere Christian claims, the central aspects of Christianity. And as we were thinking through this analogy from Lewis, we, we felt like there was new life breathed into it by the experiences we were having in the world around us. And that new life is that there there are different kinds of rooms that operate differently and a certain room in the house, the attic is built to be as far away from the door as possible. It's built mm-hmm. to keep people from being able to, to easily get out of the house. And there's walls and layers of protection, mostly well-intended, very well-intended protection designed to keep people from slipping out of the house but in doing that, the, the walls just kept getting more narrow and tighter and more restrictive. And people started feeling claustrophobic. And sort of like an attic, you have to duck a certain way as you're committing to this room. And it, it, it's unique in that way. It's, it's committing itself to be as far away from the door as possible rather than committing to, to certain uh, traditional positions. Mm-hmm. So that's a bit of the house analogy. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the, one of the things, um, or one of the statements in the book is, uh, you both write that faith isn't as nearly as easy as I thought, and that almost makes me think like going going back to like the house yeah. analogy. Nobody nobody prepares you for the attic. In fact, right. sometimes you don't even find out that there is an attic until like you're out yeah. on your own and everything. And I would just be curious on your yeah. thoughts of like. Why do you think that is like, yeah. why? cause I even think about that for my own life too, of like, there wasn't this, this preparation for like, Hey, there yeah. is going to be a time of doubt. There is going to be a time of questioning and here's what can help you in that. I do think a lot of it's well-intended. And so as I've, I think a lot of times faith communities, parents, pastors, they want to pass on their faith well to young people. They want to pass on their faith well to new converts. 
And part of doing that is they want to give confidence and conviction and certainty even to people. And so over time, uh, sort of with the influence of modernity, the influence of this certain kind of epistemology that tells us we can logically build thoughts up from the ground to, to build a, a sure case, we have built a kind of discipleship in the church that attempts to give that to people. We attempt to give people arguments that make them certain that they're right and that those outside the house are wrong. And we enforce rules and structures that help mark that space as right, while the space outside is seen as horribly depraved. And there's the, the, both these epistemological elements and these moral elements that the attic enacts for well-intended purposes to help people have confidence and conviction in their faith. But the problem is it, it doesn't work that way, mm -hmm. that these, these arguments that are built for rigid certainty are not as perfect as they're passed off. They're not as clear that the epistemology undergirding them doesn't actually hold up. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is we give people this three-line argument for why God has to exist. And one day when they're out hanging out with friends after uh, a class at college and they share that three-line argument, suddenly they realize not everyone finds it quite as convincing. And then they're not only thrown back into doubt by the reality that this argument doesn't convince everyone, mm -hmm. but now they also feel lied to because it was presented as an argument that should just work universally all the time, that this argument should give you faith. And so I think part of the motivation is uh, a protection of others. Part of the motivation is a protection of self, mm -hmm. that it really does help to push that doubt away because doubt is uncomfortable. And if we can sort of create that certainty based in rationality that Descartes tried to create, then we offload a lot of the, the pressure of being a, an agent that has to make decisions. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you think we could go about, and obviously we can't 100% prevent like people yeah. having faith crisis and, and life happens and all of that stuff. Um, but I think there is, there I think there is probably some things that we can do to yes. better help prepare people, especially for those of us who find ourselves being leaders in the church. And I would just be curious to hear your thoughts on what can we do to better prepare yeah. people for, for moments like this? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of things that apologetics offers that's really helpful in this. But I think before we start throwing around arguments, we have to talk mm -hmm. about the, the sort of posture we're holding how we're going about answering questions. And so rather than, um, we, we introduce a couple different postures in the book. And one of the postures that, that we often fall into when we try to help people avoid doubt is this sort of laser focused in on a particular argument or question. And we zero in on that and we, we put our hopes in making this argument work perfectly to, to sort of be the final nail in the coffin, the cosmological argument mm -hmm. or the moral argument or just something that can, can prop up our faith. And I know uh, I've talked to students who have spent months and months chasing after YouTube video and Reddit thread time after time, just going one layer deeper into an argument 
to try to finally reach the bottom of the argument and find something that can never be rejected at all because they want that they want the the argument to force them as it were into a position of faith but i think this is where blaise pascal helps us a lot where he says faith can't just be something that we're intellectually forced into but it's actually an act of the mind and the heart it's a wager we have to will as part of this and so shifting the posture to just and this is the the big thing shifting the posture is a move of honesty and by honestly telling people how faith works that there is actually a volition involved there are arguments there's ways we can go about discussing why belief in god is more rational than rejecting a belief in god but at the end of the day there's still a commitment a fidius you have to you have to put yourself on the line your entire life and so shifting the posture and then being honest with the kinds of arguments we put forward i think both help inoculate people to many of the problems they'll encounter later on i think the third thing if i was to throw one more out is sort of showing our own wounds in this particularly before other people even experience that doubt we as a community need to get a little bit better about being honest about doubt. So that way, when someone finally stumbles into their own doubt, maybe after leaving home or leaving their Christian college or leaving their community that they've been in, that uh, they don't feel as if they're the only one to have ever experienced it. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, and that hits out another thing that you talk about in the book is loneliness as well which is and often like that it is it's felt by so many people but it's not yeah. talked a lot can you talk about loneliness as it pertains to questioning and, and yeah. doubt and how that plays out yeah there's an obvious level of loneliness that comes out um sort of at the community level where if you have a, a christian community a church that matters to you a lot and then you begin to experience doubts and you don't feel like you can talk about those things with people, then you immediately start feeling unknown. And to not be known by someone is one of the greatest sources of loneliness in that community. You're going through the motions, you're involved in this community, and no one knows what you're walking through. And that engenders loneliness. But I think on a deeper level, the whole deconstruction process involves uh, a fundamental skepticism of established structures. And so if you feel you've been lied to by these communities over time, you begin to wonder about who else is lying to you and why they're lying to you. And every conversation you have about faith moving forward from that point, and maybe even about lots of things beyond faith, starts to feel a bit manipulative to you you start to wonder if this person's just trying to to get you on their side like uh, those people who lied to you back when you were a child are they just trying to to shift you for their own gain because it makes them feel better mm-hmm. and this skepticism of faith begins to cut the ties across the board with people you once felt loved you And it makes you genuinely question 
the nature of these communities themselves and whether or not other people in other communities are simply lying to get you on your side as well. And I've seen this happen time and time again, where a friend of mine walks away from the faith and as part of that has a really horrible psychological interaction with the way that they re they now see their childhood. They now begin to see their childhood as intellectually abusive. They begin to see their family as intellectually rigid in a way that forced them in a specific position. And that exact move proliferates loneliness throughout their other relationships, because now that the mistreatment they feel they experienced in those early relationships colors all the other relationships in their life. Mm. So it tons, tons of loneliness across the board. And to top the whole thing off, Christians feel as if they are known and every thought they've ever had has been known. Every moment of every day, mm. a God has known that thought. And I've had at least three friends mention to me that as they begin to think that no one has known them that way, as they begin to think that all of their thoughts that they once thought were known are, are now unknown, that no one ever was with them, that no one was talking to them, no one was listening to them when they prayed and no one ever will, that sort of drives home the loneliness just one step further. So a, a couple different ways, I think, but it's a pervasive feeling. Mm -hmm. For for those of us who find ourselves in the position of, like, we're not the ones asking the questions. Yep. We're the one who's being asked the questions. Yep. Is it just as simple as us of, I mean, just what you were saying of letting other people see our scars and then just, just walking with people? Or I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts or like sure. pushing that out. I think it's a, I think it's a lot of things. I think those are two of the huge ones. I think mm -hmm. there's no one size fits all on this. Of course, I think honesty, care and compassion are huge. So showing your wounds, if you have the doubts, I mean, I don't think people should make up doubts. I've mm -hmm. met people who genuinely have no doubts and that is awesome. And like, yeah. praise God for that. That's incredible. Yeah. They don't have to make it up. It's not that, that, showing your doubts somehow makes you better at reaching people. But the honesty of being able to expose yourself and being able to genuinely walk with someone is what matters. I think walking with someone, as you said, after in, in listening to their doubts matters. But then I think there are other things we can do as well. I think Christianity is true. I think Christianity mm -hmm. is thoroughly true and makes mo the most sense of our world. And I think different aspects of our life scream this to us. And I think there's practices we can step into with people that help them see this. I think moments where the sacred impugns on our lives, right? To, to think about these things, to talk about them. There's pressure points where we experience the death of a loved one. And, and there's questions about what happens to them afterwards and bringing this question up with someone who's maybe gotten to the point where they're uncertain. I think something inside of them will scream that that person is still alive. The way we honor and reflect on marriage and birth and these, these moments of sacredness in the world, 
I think help draw people a little bit away from the way our whole world is disenchanted, as the philosopher Charles Taylor would say. The way our world seems empty and void of God, we draw people back in. Taking a walk in nature is a huge one. You just take a walk with people and wonder at the beauty of the world. Wonder about why we think it's beautiful and what makes it beautiful. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hold a newborn baby. There's all these ways that we can embody it and we can share why we have faith. Even still, even despite the doubts that they share or the doubts that we have what makes it to where we still have faith. I think that sort of honest exposure is always what we should do. And it'll just take different forms with different people. Mm -hmm. There's a doubt. Doubt comes in so many forms and the medicine for that doubt comes in just as many. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I'd just love to follow up on that. Like, can you maybe tease out what some of those uh, different forms of doubt can look like? Yeah. So I, I started off mentioning experiential problem of evil i think suffering causes a ton of doubt i think suffering you can feel as if if there is a god he must not love me i think doubt can come from a certain kind of uh from attending to the wrong things we use the concept of attending a lot in the book Mm -hmm. and i think as humans Uh, we often want to think as if all of our thoughts are rational and logical and ordered. But a lot of times we're driven by what we love and by our hearts. And so uh, questions of attending matter a lot. And sometimes we just attend to things that aren't related to faith. And we start attending so much to our work and our daily grind and the pressures of the day that eventually God starts seeming just distant. And that too can be a a form of doubt. Of course, we do have intellectual forms of doubt. Those are often talked about the most. Doubts about the logical problem of evil or the plurality of religions that exist, wish fulfillment. All of these are intellectual pressures on doubt, the reliability of scripture. Um, And I think in any of these ways that doubt comes through, each person can also experience that way differently. So it multiplies then across the board as people relate to the kind of doubt that they've run into in very different ways. Mm. And some people really genuinely thrive off of someone sitting and listening to them. Other people need someone to talk to them for a while as they process inside and then say something. And so I think that's what I mean by the medicine for doubt being so multiplicative there's Mm. so many different ways to approach that question and it it just requires loving people and getting to know them a little bit that's why it's such a pastoral task and it can't be done it can't be done rightly from a stage and a debate in the academy it has to be done sitting across the table from someone drinking some coffee Mm. Mm -hmm. i'd just be curious to hear are there any um and you you might have already mentioned some of them but are there any specific doubts that maybe you're just seeing that have just popped up more often maybe in the last 10 years or so? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, one of the biggest ones that comes into play um, is the idea of Christianity being oppressive, particularly mm-hmm. when it comes to self-expression of various mm-hmm. forms, sexuality being a huge one. 
that Christianity has a moral order to it. And there is widespread concern that this moral order is asking something of me that is not only unfair, but unloving and causes me to deny myself. Mm-hmm. And in this way, the religion then can't be good. It's not only that it's not true, but it used to be accepted widely that Christianity is good, even if it's not true. The argument can just be on the truth part. But I think probably the biggest growth has been in that area that Christianity is not good for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Abuse in the church is a huge one. Sexuality concerns is a big one. The way Christianity has um, failed at times, Christians have failed at times in interacting with racism and slavery in our past. These moral questions have risen to the top and put a lot of pressure on faith for different people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd just be curious to hear how you respond uh, yeah. just whenever people talk with you about that, though. Gosh, each one has a different response, right? Like, <laughs> it does, on, does. does. On, so, on, yeah, I mean, on the third one I mentioned, when it comes yeah. to, to racism and Christian slavery, and slavery, Christians have failed horrendously at times. And I think the most important thing is to recognize, and, and this applies for Christian hypocrisy too, Christians are not... perfect people and that's not an excuse that's mm-hmm. an admission of the reality that that our world is fallen and there's a sense in which the bible is correcting confronting and reforming christians every step of the way i i think the admission of failure and then at the same time the movement to explain the ethic that ultimately resulted in the end of slavery the christian ethic that comes in i mean tom holland does a great job with this in his book dominion Mm -hmm. that there has been a movement of moral transformation started at golgotha that has spread out throughout the world where the very like the subterraneous moral commitments we have have been transformed by christianity and that has been the source of our love of human rights uh, of the reality that we finally um, have been able to rid ourselves of some of these forms of slavery as much as other forms are proliferating even in our world today. So I, I think a two-step move on that one. On sexuality, part of the difficult thing is Christianity does result in us denying ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so there's, I think, a sense in which the attic has treated this question um callously and unlovingly and also has set the stage poorly for ongoing debates but i think part of what the answer is uh on that question involves the the sacrifice on the cross that there is a sense in which one gives oneself up to christ and dies with him there and rises again. And that doesn't make that easier for my friends who experience that as denial of themselves. But it's at least honest. Mm-hmm. It's an engagement on what they're feeling. And in my experience, that admission that there is a denial here, that it is 
a, a sense in which you're laying down some desire you have and then finding ways in which uh, that is a story that all of us relate to. There's a sense in which to follow Christ is to deny oneself for all of us, mm -hmm. even if there's a particular pain in this discussion for, for people who are denying themselves when it comes mm -hmm. to sexual identity. So that would be a bit of how I go yeah. about that yeah. engagement. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I want to go back to the house analogy and I think, um, w one of the, um, I'm trying to think one of the, the, one of the ways that you tease out the house analogy that I really appreciate is you talk about, um, there, there is an importance of looking outside of the house yes, too, yes. and that there's things that we can learn from there. And so I know that you cover, uh, I think it's four different, uh, things of looking outside the house yeah. i really want to talk about two of them you know people yes. people who are interested they could they could go by the book to find the other two yeah yeah yeah. Um, but the the first one that i would love to have you talk about like a path that is often explored is is open spirituality yes and so would you mind talking about uh what that is and what pursuing that can look like yeah so open like? spirituality is where most of my friends end up going most of my acquaintances who've walked away from the faith it is less of a sort of comprehensive belief structure and more of a commitment to the rejection of institutionally built belief structures. Mm -hmm. It's, it's uh, Isabel Burton's uh, strange rights. It's yeah. the idea that what we need to uh, commit to is whatever works for us. That in some sense, the institutional belief structures that have been built are um, a series of options that we can step into and pull from. We are open to be spiritual in whatever way we want to be spiritual. And there's a number of ways that, that the world has explored this opportunity. Some of those are Christian in nature, some are not. And the draw of open spirituality is that you as an individual need to find the way that works for you. You need to find the path, the spiritual path, the moral path that just seems to fit. And it gives you seemingly quite a bit of freedom to move around, to grab onto these different beliefs and to build a structure that seems most pure and, and whole to you. So you could pull most of Christian, Christianity if you want, and then sort of trim off parts that you find to be uh, maybe unbelievable if you want to trim off the supernatural or, or uncomfortable and that's perfectly fine because it's it's your belief and you don't have to hold to, to structures and so be open with that would be the, the move and I, I think some of what can be learned from open spirituality so a huge part I'm a big fan of yeah. the Dutch reform concept of common grace that God is at work everywhere and lots of people are are interacting with truth and discovering truth yeah. and people are good and generally creating things. And so open spirituality can speak things, particularly to the attic and, and tell it about um, what it means to allow people a certain kind of freedom of thought and space to move around. And I think people long for that. I also think it tends to fall short in its own promises because it, as humans, we aren't nearly as independent as we think we are. 
we're communal creatures. We're, we live in a culture where our appetites, as it were, our moral and spiritual appetites are fed to us before we even think about them. And many of my friends who are in open spirituality sort of building their own spiritual existence, their uh, individual selective choices tend to look very similar to each other. They tend to look very similar to what everyone else in culture is sort of doing. And they, send, they tend to follow similar trends because I think the one thing open spirituality is not as honest about is that trying to get rid of this community and this heritage leaves you somewhat vulnerable to the shifting tides of culture. As things shift around, you shift with it. Yeah. Could you maybe tease that out with an example, a little bit of like that shifting? Yeah. So, um, wonderful question hmm trying to find a good one that's not overly controversial <laughs> um let's say for example the, we'll talk on a sort of big tectonic level with this yeah. many of my friends who have moved into open spirituality have committed to a sort of uh humanism the idea that all humans are significant and matter deeply and some of them even uh would say that there's some sort of spiritual sense in which humans will live forever and it's ineffable and they won't necessarily be able to put their finger on it but it's because humans matter and humans are significant mm -hmm. and central to this. And this uh, movement within culture is something that many of them imbibe without necessarily having rational resources to explain why they're imbibing it. But the imbibing of that commitment in large part comes from the Christian ethos that's pervaded the West that says people matter and have eternal significance as that there's certain inalienable rights that people have, right? And, but that mm -hmm. humans as bearers of the Imago Dei have eternal significance. That impact on culture then is imbibed in these variety of moral choices that can be felt. And some, and then you have different flavors of what that would look like. And I have friends who will go through seasons where um, they're sort of cosmic humanist naturalists, where the nature around them is this divine goddess. But at the same time, they're deciding this. All of those in their community are deciding this as well. They're moving as communal creatures through these spaces. And yet, even at the same time, these tectonic beliefs within culture about human value still seem to be pressing against them. And so those are the ways, I mean, that, that they're being shaped by culture mm -hmm. while they're trying to move through it and sort of select their moral beliefs. Mm -hmm. So if I'm hearing you right, it's a little bit like I, I think that I'm following my own path of spirituality. However, there's lots of people who are traveling on that same path right. because of all of the things that are, that are happening in society and everything. 
Yes. And there's lots of people traveling on this path because we're all experiencing the same pressures that are putting Mm -hmm. us on this path and the same kind of moral taste buds that I have or the same kind of moral taste buds that they have because of the culture we imbibe and inherit Mm -hmm. and the kind of stories we tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. And this, I I think, will be a little easier to trace out with the next of the, the four options, if that's the next one you wanted to ask about. The next to the four positions outside the house. Yeah, go for it. So, so mythic truth yeah. being the fourth option is this commitment to the idea that humans are by nature meaning makers, storytellers, yeah. that they find ways to relate to the world around us and that in the myths we tell ourselves, we find these sources of meaning. This has a long intellectual tradition uh, it's very Jungian, right? And in, in its way of humans being meaning makers for themselves. But this was how C.S. Lewis thought. C.S. Lewis was someone who held deeply to the idea of mythic truth, that we come to know the world through the myths and stories we tell ourselves. And that Christianity in that represented the best myth because it made sense of human dignity. It made sense of our longings. It made sense of our morality. It made sense of the way we long for community. It made sense of the whole we felt, of the desire we had for something more. And in all of this, that Christian myth made the most sense. And he just so happened to also believe that it was true. (laughs) It made the most sense and and it was true. And so those myths that are floating around in our world, C.S. Lewis would say, are part of what make open spirituality shifts so much right mm-hmm. that you ha- you don't have a you don't have a myth to commit to and so your beliefs become ephemeral and in carl jung piggybacks on this and explains the same thing and so the in the book we point out how frederick nietzsche talks about a similar concept as well mm-hmm. so the essentially the story changes or the popular myth changes and maybe we find that the myth that were that we're following lacks yes. in some way. So we so we look for a new myth, correct? Yes, yes. We're building our own myth, but but if we're gonna believe in a myth, I think we have a, a quote in there from one of my favorite atheists, and he um he talks about how if you're gonna believe, if you're gonna commit to a myth, which we all commit to myths, mm-hmm. it might be wiser to commit to one of these older time tested myths, namely mm. Christianity, yeah. rather than trying to commit sort of ad hoc build your myth as you go through life, it might lead to a lot more pain. Mm-hmm. You know, you've you've referenced both C.S. Lewis and Blaise Pascal a lot. Quite a bit, um, yes. And and you reference them all th- in this conversation, you've you've referenced them and all throughout the book you've referenced them. And you've already referenced some of some of their work and some of the stuff that yeah. resonated with you. I would just love to hear anything else uh from from particularly those two and then we can dive sure. into anybody else that you want to um but what 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 are some of the things that so resonated with you from blaze pascal and c.s lewis yeah as, i guess particularly as it pertains to what we've been talking about of their their own journey of faith it's a wonderful question they're both honest so if i can have a, a sort of theme of what i'm trying to build out yeah. here in relationship to faith Blaise Pascal is honest and he's robustly theological and aware of what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. And so he distances himself from Descartes, right? Descartes builds this wonderful argument for God that's very logical and sequential and ordered. But Blaise Pascal says something along the lines of how 
he can't bring himself to forgive Descartes because in Descartes' entire philosophy, he would uh, dispense with God. Well, he needs, he needs God to sort of start the machine, to sort of push it, as it were. Mm -hmm. But after that, um, God is needed no more. And Pascal's sort of point here is that Descartes acts as if we as humans have the ability to come to know truth apart from dependence on God at all, that we need no commitment, need no faith. All we need is our rationality. And Pascal offers a different approach. He says, well, yes, we need our, our rationality. We need our minds. We need our thoughts. But we also, there's a certain rationality of the heart as well. There's a, there's a way that the heart operates, and that's part of being human. Part of being human is listening to the heart's desires and longings, the way it speaks, the way we feel drawn by things. And that in this, this act of the mind, this desire, and also the act of the will, all three are necessary for committing to faith. You can't, as it were, force your heart and your will to do what the mind wants. You need all three. And Lewis in addition to being just a towering intellect and, and being the source of our analogy for this book, um, I think did us a wonderful sacrificial service in writing The Grief Observed mm. and some of his mm -hmm. other works. In The Grief Observed, after the death of his wife, he shares his journey through suffering emotional deep distress and doubt at numerous times asking himself if God is just the great sadist if there's any way he could possibly believe in this God who's cost him his his love of his the love of his life his wife his best friend the one he wished would be with him longer and in journeying through this helps us see that even one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century experienced doubt walked through that period and his discussion throughout this time to go back to what we said about attending to things and what this might mean is that he he no longer it's not that he forgot all of his arguments for god's existence all of a sudden it's not that he forgot the reasons why he believed in god it's just that they didn't seem to matter anymore they didn't seem to matter in the face of his wife dying they didn't seem to matter in the face of so much suffering and uncertainty and having to face life alone. All of those arguments seemed distant, unimportant. They didn't have mass anymore to move him. And so part of what his journey was after that was learning again to attend to God, to attend to the things that once made him believe in God and gave him hope. And that's part of what the hardest thing about Christian apologetics is, is helping people attend in a fresh way mm. to the arguments for God's existence, mm -hmm. to the reasons why they should have hope. Mm -hmm. You know, is there, is there anybody uh, else? And it could be, you know, very well known or even, I don't know, maybe you, you're the only one who knows it, but work or words that really stood out or resonated with you as it pertains to, the book, you know, surprised by doubt, or even this journey of uh, faith and wrestling with our own doubts and questions. 
Yeah. I mean, there's Charles Spurgeon has a whole, um, he's, he's loved right by all Baptists everywhere. (laughs) And he's this towering figure of Baptist preaching. And a lot of times I'm, I'm Baptist. A lot of times my community doesn't always do the best showing our own wounds and the fact that we have doubt but he did he talked about how there would be times when he 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 went through intense seasons of depression but he has these moments where he would show that like even when he wants to believe in god that's the moment where it breaks or his doubt breaks in and and he suddenly is uncertain he's not sure is how can i be sure that there's god maybe there's not maybe i've tricked myself into believing this I think the ability to show that wound, to be honest about that doubt, is something we don't talk about enough when it comes to to Spurgeon. I mean, Augustine is a huge towering figure. A lot of times when I talk about loves and how mm-hmm. we we're, we're drawn by those, that's this Augustinian influence and in me saying that we're not just thinkers, we're lovers. Yeah. Part of being human is that we're... We're drawn by our hearts and we want to act like our minds are in charge. And, and there's other thinkers today who do a great job with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those would be some of the, some of the big figures. Yeah. You know, one of, one of the other things that, that I'm always trying to figure out too, and that uh, you reference in your book is the role that patience and, and embracing mystery yeah. has with this discussion as well. I'd first of all, I'd love for you just to elaborate a little bit of why that's so why patience and embracing mystery is important in this and how, how we can become more comfortable with oh, that. Goodness. I know easy, oh, easy questions. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, well, Hey, maybe part of, honestly, part of being able to embrace mystery is admitting when I don't know being, mm-hmm. getting better at it, embracing um, patience and I, so, yeah, I think there's a deep sense in which we like to have answers. We like to know things. We like to be sure. And something deep within us chafes at any... unknowns we we want to nail them down we want to be able to explore them explain them answer them and part of this is just human and a huge part of this is modernity we live in a time where we're used to it i mean if i want to know something i just ask google if i want to know something if i'm sometimes i just ask alexa while i'm we're having i'm having a conversation with my wife about anything sports and i don't know the answer to something i'll ask alexa and she'll give me the answer right away and i'm used to knowing things it's very natural to me it seems it's it's certainly unnatural but it feels natural to me and when it comes to christianity it feels like the stakes are just so much higher too like we're putting our lives on the line when it comes to these beliefs we're choosing to live a certain kind of life we're choosing to commit to things we're literally giving our lives to christ and it feels like a lot um when it's unknown And that's part of Pascal's move with the wager is that it is a lot. There is a wager involved, but it's worth it. It's it's his move there. And it makes sense that we don't know. And so this is part of why 
Christians in particular have to be willing to accept mystery, certain kind of humility and patience. Our ways are not God's ways and our thoughts are not God's thoughts. The, the movement at the end of Job is an entire prolonged series of God explaining that there are things that he knows that we don't. We weren't there when he founded the earth. Mm-hmm. We weren't there um, when he made these decisions. And many, many of the questions we have, we, well, we don't have access to answers. We don't, I don't know, uh, a, can, a sort of fully satisfying answer to why evil and suffering is in the world. Mm-hmm. And I really wish I did because it would help mm-hmm. go through it. I feel like it would help go through it. But if Christianity is true and we live in a universe with a infinite God, and I'm a finite creature, it really makes sense that there are going to be these huge spaces, these huge aspects of life. As I, as I reach a certain point, I'm just, I'm going to have to embrace the mystery of that. Hmm. There are certain things that boggle my mind. I mean, the Trinity, I accept it on faith. Hey, but I don't, I don't know what it means for three to be one, right? I don't know how the, that's, it's fundamental. I don't know what it means in, in the incarnation for the infinite God to have become finite man, I can't make sense of that in my mind, but very fundamentally to the Christian faith, that's a commitment I've made. Hmm. And so I think our core commitments, what we would say are the foundational principles of the house push on us to accept mystery. And I think dwelling on those catechizing ourselves <clears throat> on the tradition, on the creeds, on what Christianity has been and has committed to forces us to kind of accept the reality of mystery. Mm-hmm. So that would be, and, and then saying, I don't know. I think yeah. Yeah. so the more I can say, I don't know, the yeah. better I Lot. embrace mystery and the more comfortable Lot. I become yeah. with that. Lot, lots of I don't knows. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, one, one of the things that I was really curious to ask you um, just after going through the book and you, you already alluded to it as well is that, um, is that sometimes the thing that leads us to doubt is secondary issues and not necessarily like what is at the heartbeat of Christianity. And I would just love to hear from, from just your perspective, what are some, or what, what's one of the things that you would say, Hey, I think overall we tend to make this secondary thing, a primary thing. Mm. And what are one of the things that you would say that this primary thing we're actually making it a secondary thing, but it is, but it is a primary thing. Wow. Yeah, that's good. Um, so I think on the first one, mm-hmm. what is something that we often feel or that we see regularly expressed as a primary thing that is a secondary thing. I, I think we have, the issue of uh, origins of the universe, creation, Mm. age of the earth. Mm -hmm. I think in many conversations I have, this becomes something that causes people to reject Christianity. 
confusion, uncertainty. They feel a sort of epistemic war over this question. And I think one of the helpful things for me when I'm speaking to people having these doubts is reflecting alongside the church fathers. St. Augustine, for example, um, he was very convinced that uh, whether the whether this was a seven-day literal account or not, it doesn't impact the, the sort of truthfulness of Christ, that we sort of supplant the fundamental reality of the crucifixion and the resurrection with that discussion. And I think that in many conversations becomes primary when it is secondary. I'm not saying it's not important as a discussion. I understand the implications and the importance many people find in that, but it is certainly not primary to the faith. Mm. It's not part of that foundational bedrock Christianity that we talk about in the house, the creedal positions of Christianity. I think in the inverse, something that we might treat as secondary. I don't know that, so this is a good question. I don't know that many things are primary to the faith and then people will say that those things are secondary. I think everyone, uh, I think most people are generally aware of the creedal statements and orthodox positions, but it has to do with the way we attend, mm -hmm. the way we pay attention to these issues. So often we can become complacent and accepting what these foundational truth claims are and we just kind of let them flow to the background and we don't find them exciting anymore we don't find them worth paying attention to we don't find the incarnation we don't find the reality of the trinity to be an exciting thing to pay attention to and we get fixated on whatever the most recent controversy is and so it's not that we kind of relegate those to second tier status um, with our with our voices or with our minds. We just don't pay attention to them. We just let them kind of fade to the background. And I think that happens a lot. I think core fundamental orthodox commitments fade to the background. And a lot of Christians, if you ask them what those were, many churches don't catechize them in that. They don't tell them what the foundational beliefs are. They don't tell them what the creedal beliefs are. They don't tell them about the rule of faith. There's no discussion on what the church has struggled through to establish as this sort of bedrock of Christianity. And that leads them, it leaves them vulnerable to the, the controversies of the day where they get mm. tossed to and fro on whatever issue seems important and catches the attention. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And in fact, it, it, brings to mind this this quote about intentional uh intentional blindness that you write about and again if you have any other thoughts feel free to elaborate on them but uh you say faith isn't forcing yourself to believe in unbelievable things yeah faith is overcoming or overcoming intentional blindness yeah mm. yeah I, I mean i think i'd go back to what lewis talks about there and a grief observed that what he had to relearn was how to pay attention again to things that once seemed convincing. I mean, this is the question of deconversion and deconstruction, right? No. 
there was a time where it seemed convincing and it no longer seems convincing. Part of that may be the discovery of a new thing that has driven you to, to question in relation. But a lot of times, I don't know that there is this one thing that's been discovered that causes doubts. It's more where the eyes now fixate. It's what catches the attention. And so part of what Christianity has historically been is not just a series of belief statements, but a way of life. It's been a gathering of people who live a certain kind of way. And in living that way and gathering together, having corporate worship, we actually learn how to pay attention again. And so that is part of the challenge of the book for, for the church to, to reemphasize that part of what we do, that yeah. what we're doing is not just informing the mind, but we're actually helping draw our eyes towards God. We're helping draw the eyes back towards orthodoxy itself and tell people why it matters so much. So the, the, yeah. Yeah. I get excited about attention because we don't yeah. talk about it very much. Yeah. But it's it like you can have all the same facts, but you can pay attention to them in very different ways. Mm. And it it shapes the way you think. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's one of the probably that's going to be my biggest takeaway from reading this book is that idea of of paying attention yeah. and everything. Um, I got one more quote that I uh, want to read and then just have you elaborate on as we close our conversation. But before that, I always love just giving people the opportunity to talk about anything that we haven't covered. I know we've covered so many things from the book, but is there anything, you know, in the book or just that comes to mind that you want to make sure that we cover or talk about before we wrap up our conversation? Yeah. I think it's not. I thought this really interesting part of the book, uh, as I was working through it, a part that affected me a lot Mm -hmm. was the chapter on Jesus. Mm. And it's. It's easy to move quickly past discussions of Jesus, because we say the word Jesus so much. We say the name Jesus that it seems as if we want to move past it. But um, one of the things that really hit me as I was going through it this time, as we were talking about sort of historical things you can know about Jesus and what there is, one of the things seems to be that people would agree on is that his followers, after he died, thought he was God. Hmm. And, or thought at the very least that he was something very important. <laughs> he, was, yeah. he was he was Messiah. He was the, the one who came. They were willing to to follow him. And I started thinking about how I know for a fact my friends, if I died, even if they saw me in visions, would never think that, right? Like they, they could never come to believe mm. that I am some sort of Messiah or messenger from God because they've seen me at my worst and my worst can be pretty bad. Mm. And so uh, I think in a very sort of roundabout way, it re-emphasized to me just how unique of a life Jesus must have lived. Because how, 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 how loving, how intentional, how different in order to be able to even get people to think that about you after you die. Mm. Because I, I can't think of a single person in my life that I would find that to be plausible about doesn't i mean i don't think i could yeah 
And so that, um, yeah, I think that would be the part of the book that a lot of the other thoughts have been ruminating for a while. That one I just kind of happened upon while yeah. going through the, the, the project. Um, I think my co-author Josh Shatcher actually was, was the one who pointed that out. Hmm. And so it was, it, it sort of resonated with me still. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that takes me to the last quote that I want to read. And then you could, you know, wrap up our conversation, which is also about uh, Jesus. You say we should work things out in our minds as best we can, but our best arguments are meant to point us to Jesus Christ. Mm. Our arguments can only gesture to the deeper reality to which we must humbly open yep. ourselves up by experience and practice. I think we live in a time where we are so convinced of our own capacities that it's important to remind ourselves regularly that our best arguments are imperfect by nature. They're made by imperfect beings and we live Assuming Christianity is right, we live in a universe made by a God who's perfect. And so our arguments, as we form them, as we we try to work through all of this, are serving a purpose. And I think they're really good and important. But ultimately, sort of stepping in to the life of Christianity, getting to know the person of Jesus, being someone who walks the practices of the Christian faith, and experiences God matters. And we can't do everything cognitively. And Christian apologetics has been part of the problem Hmm. because it tries to convince people that we can. I can do everything. Here's three reasons why God exists and you should accept it. And that is well-intended but dishonest. And I also think it's malformative because it leads people away from experiencing God in their faith communities as they go to church, um, as they love others, as they serve, as they partake in um, communion, as they see baptism in the ways we have been given practices by God, we've so separated ourselves intellectually from them that we no longer experience them pushing upon us. And so I think that's part of what we want the book to tell people is like, hey, your mind's not going to do it all. And nor should it, nor should you expect your mind to do it all. You need relationships, you need community, you need practices, and you need to lean into them and, and lay your life on the line. It's the wager but that's, that's just saying that your mind can't get you all the way there. Yeah. You need some other stuff too. Yeah. Uh, well, Jack, I know that people are going to want to pick up the book Surprised by Doubt and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? So Surprised by Doubt, I think uh, Amazon or Baker Book Publishers are both great. For me, um, I'm not very active on social media or other places. I have a Twitter you could follow and every once in a while I'll post. Um, And 
other than that, uh, I, my center at Liberty University, the Center for Apologetics and Cultural Engagement, holds a lot of my videos I put out and different articles I put out. So that would be a great place to, to connect. Awesome. Well, Jack, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for the great conversation. And just thank you for doing the work and for sharing it with us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on the podcast. So the thing that is still resonating with me after this conversation is just the idea of paying attention to what we pay attention to, of of that intentional blindness that can often happen to us and realizing that it's what we pay attention to that can often define our reality. It's what we pay attention to that... Uh, that in some way can limit us depending on what we're paying attention to and and learning that it's often what we're paying attention to that that shapes who we are and it really does form us in many ways and and I think for me I think for me, what that means is paying more attention to who Jesus is and learning even more about him and paying attention to, to who I want to be. And I think that's something that I've really been thinking about over the past, um, I was going to say several months, but it's longer than that. It's probably the last two years or so. Um, and in some ways it's, it's my whole life. I guess you could say that, um, but thinking through the type of person that I want to be paying attention to that and trying to make sure that my actions, my attitude are consistent with the person that I want to be. And so, and, and realizing that part of who I want to be is I want to be a person who is curious. I want to be a person who is, um, I want to be a person who you can trust and not because I guess I want to be a person that you could trust with, with your vulnerability, with your insecurities. Well, at the same time, I want to be a person that you know is a person of truth as well. And, and honestly, that's, that's part of the reason why the podcast was birthed is, is to be that person and to provide an environment to, to provide maybe even model space like that. So yeah, so those that's that's just some of the things that I'm thinking about from this conversation. So uh, again, if if you want to continue on this lifelong journey, please subscribe to my uh, Substack newsletter, and uh, each week you'll get three things emailed to you of some of the things that I'm just learning about. And again, as uh, if you've been listening for a while, you've heard me say so many times, it could literally be anything. It just has to engage my curiosity and make me think a little bit and help me learn a little bit so with that i do want to say thank you to sam massey for providing the music for this podcast thank you to jack for being on the podcast of the great conversation and thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode my name is caleb mason and until next time keep learning keep growing